This is an ABC podcast. In retrospect, I think of those as two utterly wasted years of my life. Although perhaps they're not wasted, I've drawn on that time in a, a couple of novels and in this one, The Promise as well. Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is The Book Show, where I bring you conversations with your favourite fiction writers. Right now, it is booker season, and to celebrate, I'm bringing you a series of conversations with previous winners of the prize. In 2021, Damon Galgett won for his novel, The Promise, and I think it was a deserving win for the South African writer, who had been shortlisted twice before and has been called one of the world's great writers. I was lucky enough to sit down for a face-to-face chat with Damon when he was in Australia, and we talked about power, privilege, and mountain climbing. You published your first novel, A Sinless Season, when you were 17, which is amazing. Uh, Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Well, always is a long time, but from a very early age, it was my ambition and aspiration. Yeah, I mean, I think from about the age of 10, probably, um, I had a strong feeling that this particular vocation was mine. But, you know, feeling it and wanting it doesn't make it true. Um, There's a lot of labor involved, obviously, in getting anywhere in the book world. Uh, But I was writing novels long before I published that first not very good book. So, yeah, um, it's it's certainly been something I've wanted for a long time. And just as well I got there because I'm, you know, my personality doesn't equip me for lots of other lines of work. You'd say the first book wasn't very good. Uh, well, it's not a book I'm very proud of um, in retrospect. Um, you know, I'm not going to make claims for it that are untrue. It was an adolescent novel, literally. And I sort of feel about it the way many of us feel about our adolescent poetry, I guess. Um, you know, heartfelt, but, you know, on a technical level, not very accomplished. So, in fact, I've not allowed that book to be reissued for quite a long time. You'd rather it didn't exist? I would have preferred to kick off with my second book, which um, I think appeared when I was 25 or so, Uh, a more reasonable age to begin a career like this. And, you know, publishing early has its disadvantages, Um, one of them being that you might get the false impression that this is a lot easier than it is. I mean, that book got a fair amount of attention because of my age. And as I got older and that factor fell away, the attention went onto the writing itself uh, and I began to be judged by the usual rigorous standards. Um, And it was only then that I realised how difficult this particular line of work actually is. Wow. Last time you were on the show, you talked about being sick as a kid in hospital with lymphoma. Um, How sick were you, Damon? Very, in fact. I mean... So sick that the doctors at the time told my parents um, there was no way I could survive. I mean, the kind of lymphoma I had, Burkitt's lymphoma, is in fact very treatable if it's caught early. But in my case, they caught it at the very last moment, stage four. And um, I think I was comatose, in fact, um, by the time they diagnosed what it actually was. So something of a medical miracle that I'm here, but indeed I am. And... um, Seems like a distant memory. I mean, in many ways, so distant that it feels as if it happened to somebody else. How long were you in hospital for? You know, I can't remember all those details, um, but a few months. um, And I had chemotherapy for five years. They they wanted to continue the chemotherapy for 
10 years, in fact, but my mother, who accompanied me on every single hospital visit, um, finally drew a line under that and said no more. Um, fortunately for me, she made the right decision because that could have gone wrong. Mm. You've spoken about this before, but can you just tell me how much that time in hospital shaped you as a reader and a writer? Well, all I know for sure is that my love of books um, and reading began then, you know, and it makes sense to me that my consciousness as a writer was shaped in that time. But, you know, um, I know a great many writers who've never gone through any such traumatic event and they feel the compulsion just as deeply as I do. So in a funny way, that um, explanation for why I am a writer may not be the correct one. But as I say, it, it, it makes sense. I still have a deep love of being read to, which doesn't happen so often when you're an adult. But uh, I find that a very comforting idea. And um, I think that certainly, you know, can be traced back to those years. A lot of people sitting beside you and reading your stories. Sure. Um, just when you say that, it gives me a little glow. So, um, yeah, it's, it's one of life's pleasures. I mean, reading anyway is one of life's deep pleasures, but being read to is, you know, a slightly more pleasurable uh, experience. Maybe we should bring back reading to each other as adults. Well, it's probably part of the reason that audiobooks have become so popular. People generally like being read to. Um, I mean, one of the things I like about books is that it sort of requires a little bit of active imagination from you as opposed to watching something on a screen, um, which is a very passive activity. But I guess there's a passivity involved in being read to and maybe people take pleasure in that too. Hmm. In your book-a-winning novel, The Promise, uh, we see at the beginning a, a dying white woman asking her husband to give a piece of land in the house on it to their black maid. You knew family where this happened? This comes from life? Well, a friend of mine um, told me a story that was quite similar uh, from his own family. And this was while I was already underway in writing The Promise. So actually that element of it, although it became very, very central, um, arrived later. And, um, you know, I haven't recreated the details of that particular story. In fact, some of the details are very different. But the story does stand for a lot of what's happening in South Africa right now. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that land, the question of land ownership is very, very central to South African political life. And I knew the moment the friend, my friend, told me the story, uh, that it would have that resonance in a, in a literary sense. So it was a, one of those little serendipitous gems that life hands you at exactly the right moment. And I should make it clear in the book, the promise is made, but the promise is not honoured. You know, that's the tension of the story. Right. I mean, it, it gives substance to the book. If, in fact, the promise had been answered and honoured right at the beginning, there wouldn't have been much book. But, yeah, the family in a truly South African way... Um, dances around the issue of fulfilling the promise and finds various ways not to do so, um, at least for a good span of time. Um, and that's what gives the book its, um, well, not its structure, but certainly its uh, arc, its narrative arc. When you say in a very South African way, what do you mean by that? Well, white South Africans are not known for their generosity of spirit, I don't think. Um, you know, um, 
white South Africans are perceived as intruders, I guess, by the black population to a large degree. And, you know, that interpretation is not incorrect. Uh, Europeans came to Africa when it was already occupied and behaved as if it was empty. Um, and land that was effectively owned, I mean, not in any legal sense, but owned and occupied by people who'd been there for a very long time was taken from those people. So, um, yeah, it, it is a story that's very, very, uh, very much at the core of South Africa and one that still has to be resolved, actually. I should make it clear that you are a white man writing about South Africa. Have you always been aware of the complication of that? Well, um, again, always is a big word. Mm. I was born into high apartheid times and it was one of the features of the, those times that, you know, the system um, that we were living under was taught to you as necessary, you know, maybe unfortunate, but necessary. So you were getting the message all the time that, well, the rest of the world doesn't understand us, but we have our problems and we have to deal with them in our own way. Um, so to whatever degree, as a child, you, you take that in, um, and because most of the adults around you are teaching you that version of the world, you assume it to be true. So in a certain sense, you have to unlearn what's being, what's been taught to you. I, a lot of people don't want to unlearn it and continue to hold the views of their parents and grandparents. But uh, in my case, I guess um, I was always at a slight angle to the rest of my family. So I was questioning a lot of assumptions from early on, not because I'm, you know, morally elevated, but, you know, um, many things, I guess, placed me outside the usual sphere of um, thinking in South Africa. And, and that was one aspect uh, of South African life that I was uneasy with from quite a young age. Mm. You did time in the military, right? There were people were conscripted, white men were conscripted into the South African military, and you were kind of the last generation where that happened. Like, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, um, it was compulsory for young white men, mostly straight out of school, to do two years in the military. You could delay that slightly if you were going to university and made a special application. At that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to study, and I thought it might be best just to get it over with. I should make it clear that if you refused to go to the military, if you took um, a position of, you know, objection, um, even on the grounds of being a pacifist, uh, the alternative was six years in jail, and I'm afraid I did not feel up to that. But I um, pulled some strings and got into the Air Force and more or less sat in an office um, in central Pretoria, cutting out newspaper clippings and sticking them into a big scrapbook. So um, my contribution to the apartheid military was minimal, I guess. How do you reflect on that now, you know, being a part of, as you say, the apartheid military? I wish, I wish I'd had more resolution of character. I mean, I don't think I would have ever had the spine to go to jail for six years. But some people did leave the country and um, in many ways... I wish I'd been strong enough to do that. But I would have been doing it in the face of uh, opposition, not only from the state, but from my own family. I would have really not had support, I think, financial or emotional from anybody. Um, and I, as an 18-year-old, felt too lonely and weak, I guess, to go that route. So in retrospect, I think of those as two utterly wasted years of my life. Um, although perhaps they're not wasted. I've put them to literary use. I've, I've drawn on that time in a, a couple of novels um, and in this one, The Promise, as well. Mm. 
You you say you were always a little bit at odds with your family, but when do you think it was that you you really did become aware of your privilege, I guess, as a white man in South Africa? Um, there wasn't any big blinding moment of realisation. It was more a slow shifting of consciousness, I guess. Um, and like a lot of other people, um, the flowering of my political conscience, such as it is, um, really happened when I went to university. I mean, most universities are hotbeds of leftist thinking and South Africa was no different in that respect. So suddenly I was away from home, away from my upbringing. I went to Cape Town to drama school. Um, and we were also at that point in a state of emergency in South Africa in the dying days of apartheid. And other people, friends of mine from university were being arrested, detained without trial. I mean, that made the issue very, very personal. I mean, I remember taking part in a protest at the university where the police moved in with, uh, you know, great violence and relish, it has to be said. And I, I got hit over the head with a quirt, um, you know, uh, not pleased that I'm trying to set myself up as some kind of anti-apartheid hero. But it was a moment where I understood what the state would do to you if you did not go along with them, um, which in a certain sense is crossing a line, right? Because what they did to me was a very, very mild version of what they were doing to my fellow citizens, my black fellow citizens. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's nothing like the end of a quote to teach you a political lesson. Mm. Um, I know with The Promise it gets talked about a lot as a political novel and, you know, we do follow this family over about four decades of South African history. I know you are very interested in the family at the centre of this novel, The Swap Family. Does it frustrate you that this book gets talked about as a political novel? I'm kind of used to that by now. You know, almost any South African story is interpreted as political um, if you frame the country in your narrative in any way, which clearly I am doing here. I'm not um, oblivious clearly, to history. But history for me is a different entity than politics. So I don't think of it as a political novel. You won't get the name of a single political party in the book. Um, the only politicians that are mentioned are the various presidents of South Africa. Each section of the book takes place in a different decade of recent history, and there was a different president in power and a, a different reigning spirit, if you like. But that's what I was trying to evoke, that ethos, that reigning spirit of the country, not the specifics of the politics. Um, but, you know, the book is most certainly um, unfolding with one eye on history and how history feels. So it's it's not an aspect of South African life that, um, you know, passes my notice. Mm. Yeah, I was reading another one of your novels, The Good Doctor, and there was a line that I just had to pull out because it says everything is politics. The moment you put two people in a room together, politics enters in. I wondered if maybe that's the case with your writing too. You know, it might not set out to be political, but just the fact that it is happening in South Africa means that it instantly is. I mean, I think on a certain level, that's absolutely true. Um, any power tension between people is political mm. in nature, if you like, but not overtly so. On the other hand, I mean, that's kind of overstating the case, I guess, in a, in a certain way, uh, deliberately in the case of that book. Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of conversations that are not, you know, 
clearly political, but they do involve imbalances of power. And those imbalances, I guess, have been generated again by history. So yeah, I'm not trying to disown the statement. I'm just trying to qualify it slightly. You're listening to The Book Show, where I'm speaking to the Booker Prize winner, Damon Galgett. Uh, Damon, your book, The Promise, is shaped around four funerals. Uh, The idea for this came from a boozy lunch with a friend, I believe. Tell me a bit more. Yeah, I was chatting to a friend of mine. Um, He's a theatre director, um, a very funny, entertaining raconteur. Uh, He's a bit older than me, um, and he's lost his entire family. I mean, not all at once, um, gradually. Uh, His parents and his siblings have preceded him. And he was being very, very uh, entertaining at lunch, telling me all kinds of very amusing anecdotes about the funerals he'd attended, which sounds as if it shouldn't be funny, but in fact, you know, he's, he was telling stories about people's behavior. Uh, and when families come together, behavior is very much part of the picture. I don't think it happened that day in particular, but in the weeks that followed, the idea sort of trickled through to my brain that this might be an unusual and interesting way to approach the story of a family. You know, there are lots of books about families out there, but they tend to be linear sagas that take you through a big sweeping arc. But I thought the device of approaching the family story through four funerals, not looking at anything in between, just jumping several years between each funeral, I thought that might be an interesting construction uh, for such a novel. Um, And what was most compelling about it is the fact that a lot of that story is untold. Mm. Um, And again, it's asking the reader to fill in the blanks. So it's pleasing to me when the reader imaginatively has to contribute to the exercise and figure out for themselves what might or might not have happened uh, to these various characters. Um, So yeah, all, all of that sort of took hold of my brain and I gradually drew myself closer to the page to begin writing the novel. I really like the structure. I like the way that we touch in with this family at different points over those decades. But the way we whip through lives so quickly really made me think about time and ageing as well because, you know, these characters age and die very quickly in your book. I did wonder, you know, you're 58 now. What's your relationship with ageing, Damon? Well, it uh, occupies my mind a great deal. Um, Well, as you get older, inevitably... um, you start thinking about the fact that the greater part of your life is behind you, not in front of you. Um, And, you know, you notice the failings, even though they may be small, of your body as they accumulate. Um, So I guess that has the general effect of focusing your brain on time and the fact that on one hand it seems to pass incredibly slowly, And on the other hand, incredibly fast. I cannot believe I'm 58. Seems to me it was just the other day I was a teenager. And in many (laughs) ways... Writing a sinless season. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, at least I hope I've progressed um, skills-wise from those days. But yeah, um, the the one sense of one's inner self doesn't change after a certain point. It's slightly astonishing to look in the mirror and realise that the outer self has changed and will continue to do so. Uh, the style of The Promise gets talked about a lot. It switches perspectives quite quickly. It's quite cinematic in scope. I know that you were a little bit 
worried about this when you were writing the book, wondering if it was going to work for the reader. And I was interested to know how present the voice of the reader is for you when you're in the writing room. Yeah, I never quite know how to answer when you get variations on the question, who are you writing Mm. for? Because the reader's not present for me in that sort of way. I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm trying to I'm trying to make what I'm writing intelligible to somebody else. Um, it certainly doesn't begin in an intelligible way, but you're trying to make sure that what you're putting down is elegant, concise, and comprehensible. Um, so in that sense, you have a reader in mind. But I guess um, insofar as I visualize such a reader for myself, it's probably an abstracted version of myself with my tastes, my expectations, and so on. Um, who else would you be writing for, really? Writing for yourself. Yeah, I mean, you're not, obviously. You're writing for the people who are going to read the book, but what are the standards you bring to the book? They're mine. The expectations you bring, they're mine too. So, yeah, in that sense, I'm writing for myself. And talking about that experimental style that you've brought to The Promise, is that about challenging yourself, you know, pushing yourself as a writer, or is it simply a matter of finding the right way to tell that particular story? Uh, I guess the latter. I believe in some way that each book uh, has a an ideal voice with which it wants to speak. And a really significant part of the project for me is finding what that voice might be, which means you have to really kind of explore what the various possibilities are, whether you're going to write in the first person or the third person, what sort of tone you're going to take, what emotional range you're covering, a, a whole bunch of things. Um, and it's it's really, really key Um, I'm not one of those writers who just leaps off the diving board and goes with whatever, you know, arrives in your mind. I, I think you have a, well, it's a duty might be too big a word, but you, you have an obligation to try to craft the book, um, so that it, you know, speaks as fully as it possibly can. Um, I did begin this book in a far more traditional way. Um, When I say traditional, I mean um, using a third person narrator who is mostly invisible. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was frustrated with that. And and when I I hit on this alternative voice, which, as you pointed out, leaps very rapidly from one perspective to another, it felt like the voice that the book wanted, which is to say, um, it's a book that speaks in a kind of choral voice, if you like. Um, there are multiple South African uh, tones and voices coming through. Um, and instinctively, I just felt that was right for this book. It's a, my most South African novel by far. And South Africa is not a country that speaks in a single voice. We, we are a chorus. Um, and I had to find a way to let that chorus sing. Oh, that's so beautifully put. You live in Cape Town. I do. Uh, I, I heard you climb Table Mountain once a week. Is, does that still happen? Yep. Um, wasn't possible through lockdown because our government in its wisdom wouldn't even allow us out to do, you know, exercise. Um, but, yeah, I'm back into my schedule of climbing once a week. Tell me how, how beautiful is it? I mean, what's, what's that climb like? Well, you know, Cape Town's one of very few cities in the world uh, where nature is prevalent. So it's a city that wraps around a mountain at its heart. And if you climb that mountain, um, when you reach the top, 
Uh, it's very easy to believe you're very, very far from other people. There's no sign of the city. You don't hear it. And yet you are right, right in the middle of, in the middle of it. I was telling a writer friend, Colm Tabin, about, you know, this weekly ritual of mine. And he said, oh, but you should write this up as a diary and publish it. Um, that's sort of been on my mind ever since because your mind, um, you know, you, you cover a lot of uh, philosophical subjects while you're climbing. And um, yeah, it's, it's a good meditational space. So I may yet uh, get to the point where I set some of those thoughts down. But uh, in the meantime, it's uh, a physical exercise. It's also mind expanding. And, um, you know, as you've, as you've asked me, I mean, it's really, really beautiful. It's uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinary uh, place to be. Cape Town's a city of the body, if I can put it that way. I've injected a little of this thought into my book, too. The life of the mind is not the most uh, predominant thing in Cape Town. Everybody's surfing or jogging or climbing the mountain or, uh, you know, uh, exercising themselves. So I guess this is how I pursue that particular aspect of being. Damon Galgett, his booker-winning novel is The Promise. To hear more interviews with previous Booker winners, including Margaret Atwood, Bernadine Evaristo and Douglas Stewart, make sure you're following The Book Show on the ABC Listen app. I'm Claire Nichols, speaking to you from Wajak Noongaland in Perth. Take care. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 